0: met a lady uh last night at hope community church went up for service there my daughter autumn was singing and so i went to hear her sing and this lady uh had received cds from our camp i mean our church sorry i'm going to be talking about camp in a minute but our church and she said the only thing i miss is you're always talking about how good the music was and i wish that the music were on there and i i do too uh but there are, there are copyright problems, and that's the reason we can't include those uh, in, in the services. This lady, Cynthia, think about it, pray for her. She has a 16-year-old daughter named Sunshine, and Cynthia is dying. She has a muscle-wasting disease, and in fact, Autumn first met her because she saw her daughter Sunshine taking care of her in uh, the restroom and she was so familiar with doing that with Linda. She was in a wheelchair. Cynthia's in a wheelchair. And what a bright spirit. And yet she said, I don't want to die. And I said, I, I know. We weren't, we weren't created to die. And, uh, but a godly, godly woman, very concerned about what will happen to her, her daughter. So be praying about that. You know, I want to say one word about, uh, well, a couple of words about the budget. This budget that we are recommending is ambitious. As Bert said, it's come from a lot of different directions. It's not just the elders sitting around saying, "Uh, let's uh, spend this and let's spend that. It's ambitious in a year that uh, it might not warrant that kind of optimism. But you know, every time God has led us to put a budget or submit a budget that seems just beyond our reach, He always meets it. Now, it's not that we always... all the the income is there to do all the things that we thought about, but everything that we feel that God wants us to do, we've been able to do. And I want to just challenge you about something. I, and I've, I've taken this challenge for two months now, today. I've check- in for February. I want to challenge you, as long as you have a job, give more. Anywhere from $5 to $100 a month more than you've been giving. I mean, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we? There are people all around us losing jobs, and this doesn't ensure that we keep a job, and it might put you in a harder place if you lose your job, because you could be storing this money away, but, you know, it's like the manna. You store it away, it's going to go bad. I'm not saying be foolish with your money, but my goodness, let's let's thank the Lord. Show our appreciation to the fact that He still given us a job. So, And by the way, one other thing, I, I did want to say this about this too. We're not taking on any new missionaries but we're increasing all of our missionaries by $100 or that's what we're asking uh, if you agree with us about that because they're losing support right and left. And so we want to do everything that we can to help them. And just like any budget if the money's not there we won't do all of the things that we, we feel at this time that God is leading us to, to consider. But Let's pray that it does come in and that, and, that the, and that the kingdom work goes on in spite of all that happens around us. As most of you know, uh, I, I spent 20 years at TBR Christian Camp in the mountains. And one of the great burdens that I had there, it was, it was one of those things that somebody's got to do. You know, I had to go snow skiing anywhere from 10 to 15 times a year at Beach Mountain or Sugar Mountain. And somehow I, I found the strength to do that, even though it was a a great chore. The winters were a good bit colder in the mountains than they are here. Typically, we had a lot more snow than, than we tend to get here. And since the camp was at, at, at 3,000 feet, and uh, we would ski at, at beach sometimes. Well, beach and sugar both right about 5,400 feet at the top. But beach, you'd have to drive almost all the way up there to, to go skiing. So we found ourselves in the clouds a lot. Here we would call it fog. Actually, there we called it fog sometimes, but the the clouds were hanging low and and, and when you're going to beach mountain you're, you're going from from Banner Elk to Beach mountain it 's about a twelve or thirteen hundred foot incline um, in about three miles, so you can imagine how steep and how curvy those roads were and and just off i mean not ten feet off the road, and they didn't always have rails. Like a five hundred foot or more drop, so imagine driving up into the fog. That was a lot of fun, especially if you had a you know a bunch of kids in a van or a bus or or something like that uh, the, i 've been up there, and you won 't believe me, but i 'm telling you the truth. There have been times that i couldn 't see ten feet in front of where I was driving, and the only thing I could see was the white line on the right and because you couldn't see the yellow line in the middle of the road. You could just barely see a little bit of the white line and then if it ever broke, you know, for another road coming in, you ah, ah, You can't see anything. You just you're just blind and you have to go by feel. Well, that doesn't mean that the fog was all bad. <laughs> I mean, when the temperatures were below freezing, that moisture would would freeze onto the trees. And if you happen to be on Beach Mountain during the day, when the fog lifted and it would lift from the bottom up, you were in for a, a, a sight that was spectacular beyond your imagination. We called it ice fog. Most people call it hoarfrost, but we called it ice fog. You ever seen that, where the the moisture freezes on the trees? It is beautiful in the snow, and on top of Beach, you can see for for miles and miles and in in a, in a lot of directions. So it was worth it. You know, we this is our third week here, fourth week in the small groups, talking about the Trinity. And some of you may think that you're in a fog, a very thick fog, in fact. But the good news is, the fog clears up behind you, just like you're going up that mountain. And if you will hang in there, it'll be worth it at the end. I mean, already, last week's, Lesson is making sense, and it didn't last week. I mean, you're still in the fog today, but that's okay. It's clearing up behind you. And when you get to the end, it is going to be a spectacular view. Well, the first few weeks we've talked about why it is important to study the Trinity and why it is crucial to be so precise in our language, just as precise as our finite minds will enable us to be when defining the Trinity. And when I say that, let me just say this too. Don't worry about getting it exactly right. Like, uh-oh, is that a heretical idea? Because, you know, that's the temptation. I mean, already a couple of times I've said things and then I look at something else and I say, shoot, I wish I hadn't said that. I mean, I mean it's, it, it is extremely difficult to get it exactly. We're going to do it as best we can. But, but that doctrine is not there to trick us. God didn't put it there to say, all right, let's just see who gets it and who doesn't. Who's diligent enough and who's not? I mean, that's, of course, it's bad if you get it really wrong. But that doctrine, this doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is given to us for our salvation, and for our comfort. And it's a a, a blessing indeed. And when we get the view at the very end, it will be... Spectacular! Today we're going to learn, or as the case may be for many of you, review the truth about the Godhead, this awesome God that we serve, who is three in one. For the next three weeks, we'll consider the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Today's text is um, Acts 17, verses 22 to 34. Some of you know the context of this passage. The Apostle Paul comes into Athens and he, he walks up, Morris Hill, and he comes to this group, uh, the Areopagus, uh, where philosophers debated religion and philosophy all day. They were particularly pleased when someone would come up with a new idea, and they, they, they sensed that Paul had a, had a new religion, and they said, come on, let's hear, hear a few words from you, buddy. Now, in these few words that we have recorded about Paul's presentation, we don't know if it was this brief or not, doubt it seriously, but this is a summary of what he said at the very least, but there is an enormous amount of truth packed in to these few verses. We're going to read this passage, and then I want to talk about our triune, our great triune God, before we meet at the Lord's table, where, according to 1 Corinthians 10, we will participate in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Would you please stand as we read Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to 34. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we, we, have, we have heard a great deal about you. In, straight from your mouth, from your word. Father, we pray that these truths... Will sink deep into our hearts and we will absorb them and, and an understanding of who you are and how you relate to us and all that that means. Open our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Missy. What do you think God is like? That, that, that's an important question. You think He's far away or is He near? Is He accessible? Or not? Is He someone that we can know or is He ultimately unknowable? Another question. Is God righteous and just or is He gracious and merciful? Is He so righteous and perfect so much so that our best name for Him or description of Him is holy, which is a word that literally means other than. We, we can't conceive. Ultimately, of who He is, is He so perfect and righteous that sin cannot be allowed into His presence or does He forgive sin and welcome sinners? You know the answer to that. It's yes. He's all of the above. How is it possible for Him to be all of the above? The answer is found in the Trinity. Now, God could have been anything other than a trinity. A triune God. He's God after all. But He is a trinity. Three persons. Persons, And we cannot, in our finite minds, conceive of how all of this could take place apart from who He is and the way He is. One person, or one in essence, three persons. That, according to Romans 3.26, allows Him to be both just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. We saw um, last week how easy it is to get off base and, and to make mistakes about His threeness or His oneness because people tend to emphasize one or the other. And He's both... We'll be defining this great mystery, three in one, for several more weeks as the series continues. This morning we want to just take a look at this God who is so much bigger than we ever thought before or than we will ever know. Our appreciation grows, however, as we consider the far reaches of His holiness and His goodness. We're going to see in the coming weeks how the doctrine of the Trinity is revealed to us for our comfort and for the deepening of our relationship with God. And when we speak of God's greatness, we refer to his transcendence, which means that he is far above his creation and he's independent of his creation. Doesn't need anything from us. He's just he created us, but he doesn't have to have us. He doesn't need us. For the first 1800 years of the church, God's transcendence was emphasized. We talked about his greatness and his holiness, and that's why hymns like A mighty fortress is our God, were written. Those kinds of hymns were were written in song and they were very majestic in sound and and very doctrinal in content. You know, when when one first considers the greatness of God, the temptation is to think that He can never really be known or, or approached. At Mars Hill, Paul told his listeners that God cannot be confined to the places that man has built. Like man made temples. Indeed, God made the very people who made those temples. And He said, you can't put Him in a temple like this. You can't confine Him to a a place like this. He doesn't need anything from us, nor does He need anything in the entire universe in order to be fulfilled. We do... It's always just one more thing and we'll be okay. Whether it's it's things or whether it's relationships, it's always something else. If it's just one more thing, if this part of my life were in place, and I think I'd just be happy. No, you wouldn't. But God's never like that. He doesn't need anything. He is self sufficient. And self-sustaining. Not only can he not be contained in buildings made by human hands, let's take that a step further and say that he cannot be contained or, or comprehended in finite minds. Paul said, the art and imagination of man is never going to get him right. How can that Which is created, understand its creator, unless the creator reveals himself. Can you imagine how foolish we look to God when we begin a statement of our understanding of Him with something like, Well, you know, I just think God is such and such a way. That's silly. So many people's beliefs about God are based on what Grandma said. Or just something that they heard. You know, I heard one time that God is like some fuzzy bear or something. You know, I, mean, I don't know. I, I didn't obviously think about that one before I used it. <laughs> you know, it's not surprising that we'd, we would think that because there... Think think those kinds of things because there's always a temptation to create God in our own image. We'll we'll talk about that this week in home groups. But He cannot be contained in our finite minds. He is infinitely beyond our capacity to understand unless He reveals Himself to us. and And fortunately for us, in addition to the reality that God is a transcendent God, He is also imminent. He is near to us. Revealing himself to us. When we speak of God's nearness, we, we refer to his imminence. To say that God is imminent is not only to acknowledge that he exists, but that in fact he remains in his creation and he interacts with it. While God's transcendence has been emphasized for the greater part of church history, this last 200 years, man, have we come to know that God is indeed warm and fuzzy. And we have emphasized his emphasis, I mean, his eminence. His and that's why we sing so many praise songs, as if we're intimately acquainted with God, like the song that David sang for the special. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. Even though Chris Tomlin was acknowledging God's greatness in his worship, the song has a, has a feel of of being intimately acquainted with the Lord. By the way, I, I, Chris Tomlin does just about as good a job as anybody I know at acknowledging God's greatness in his transcendence and yet saying in a way that's quite appealing to most of us that, that we're intimately acquainted with him because of the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, it is very, very good that we should sing songs of worship and praise. It's it's just the language of the Psalms often, isn't it? Have you ever noticed how much of the Psalms is in the songs that we sing? Hear the praise and worship songs? You're talking about God in a, in a way that emphasizes... His eminence. After um, Paul spoke of God's transcendence in his message to the people on Mars Hill, he quickly moved to say that God is near to us. He also acknowledged that there is a void in the human heart that, that seeks to be filled. That's understandable. We're creatures and we want to know about our Creator. We want to know Him. We want to know about Him. Fortunately, God is not far from us. He makes it possible for us to know Him. Remember last week in John chapter 8 when Jesus told the Pharisees, I want to tell you about God because I've been with Him. You speak out of ignorance. I speak directly from His presence. I have been with the Father and I can tell you exactly who He is like. Later in John 14 when His disciples... He was talking with his disciples and Philip said, Show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. He said, Don't you you know, Philip, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus Christ revealed God to us directly, having been directly in His presence, and He was God Himself. God is awesome and He's far above us, and yet He is near. Since we have the tendency to make God in our own image, you can see how easy it would be to get God's transcendence and His eminence out of balance, can't you? I mean, Those who focus on transcendence could end up believing that God is so far above us that He really just doesn't care about what's going on here. It's kind of like He created the earth, set it in motion, and then you're on your own now. Maybe I'll, I'll get back with you in a couple of billion years. At the other extreme, those who focus excessively on God's eminence can see God in everything, including these chairs upon which you sit. I mean, He is in everything around us. Pantheists fail to distinguish between the Creator and the creation. To say that God is everywhere doesn't mean that He is a part of everything that He created. Take care of this creation? Absolutely. Worship it? No. A lot of people today take it way too far. And they start to worship the creation. We're responsible to be good stewards, but never fail to make the distinction between God and His creation. So is God transcendent or is He imminent? Both. I suppose the question we desperately need to answer is the second one. That was asked earlier. Earlier is God so holy that He cannot look upon sin, or does He forgive and welcome sinners? Once again, Paul tells us that He is both. One more time, I want us to look at just a short passage here in Acts seventeen, verses twenty-nine to thirty-one. Then Jim McLaughlin is going to come and lead us in communion. But before he does, he's going to help us make sense of this paradox that God is holy. And yet, forgiving. Paul said, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine image, divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. I mean, we do that as Christians. We we make God in our own image. All of us tend to do that. But it's especially... A problem with those who don't know the Lord by his, through His Word. Verse 30, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to, to repent. Because He has fixed the day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. He's going to do it. By a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising him. From the dead, some people have suggested that the reason that the that the philosophers cut him off right there is he made a leap, a logical he, he skipped the point of, of of death before he got to resurrection. Uh, I, I I don't think that's probably the case, but Paul said two things are true: God's going to judge this world, but there is hope because of a man who has been resurrected. There is a hope for us at the end on the day of judgment at the end of our lives. Well, is going to come and deal with this next part.
1: In preparation for communion, Brad had asked me to address the issue here. Uh, Can or how can a holy God, a perfectly, absolutely holy God, forgive sin? How can He do that? After all, if Scripture teaches us anything, it teaches us that God hates sin. Sin arouses the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is not something we like to think about. You remember Jesus in the garden praying that this cup pass from Him if possible. Then He said, not my will, but your will. And that cup that he wanted to pass was the wrath of God that he would face on the cross. It was not the crucifixion itself. It was the wrath of God. Wayne Grudem in his book, Systematic Theology, says, God's wrath means he intensely hates all sin. Romans 1.18 says, Talked a little bit about this when it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the question remains how can a holy God forgive sin? Of course, in his holiness, in his uh, righteousness, his perfection, He must do something with sin. He cannot ignore it. It's contrary to His character. And God never does anything contrary to His character. He can't. Something must be done about this problem of sin because God intensely hates all sin. And of course, we're all familiar with uh, the Old Testament Uh, examples of God's wrath being demonstrated quite vividly. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, the flood, and on and on we could go. And some people like to think, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. I'm in love with the God of the New Testament. Uh, But the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. God never changes and never will Jesus was quite clear. He talked a little bit about punishment for sin, doing something about sin. In Matthew twenty five forty one, he said, Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Pretty strong. In Matthew twenty five forty six, still Jesus talking. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And in Mark 9, verses 47 and 48, Jesus again says, And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye, than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. Then in Revelation chapter fourteen, verses nine through eleven, and I don't understand Revelation, never pretend to understand Revelation, but but I got I think I got this thing figured out right here. Uh, So I picked this out, what I think I understand. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also would drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he would be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. times like this, you like to read Romans 8.1. It tells us that there is now therefore no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And we praise God for His grace and His mercy. But we still haven't answered the question. How can a holy God forgive sin? Well, we know that He's also a God of grace. And He provided the perfect sacrifice for His people. For His people. Think about that. In order for my sins your sins, the sins of the elect throughout the world, to be forgiven without simply subjecting us to the eternal damnation and punishment that we are worthy of. We always like to talk about what we're worthy of. We're worthy of eternal damnation. We are depraved and sinful and wicked. Our hearts are self-centered. Prideful. And yet, God, the transcendent God, demonstrated His eminence to us. And how did He do that? He personally came and became a man, He provided Himself as our perfect sacrifice. Now this sin that God intensely hates requires the perfect sacrifice. And only God is perfect. Therefore, class, only God can be the sacrifice. Only God is perfect. Only God is sufficient, but He is perfectly perfect and sufficiently sufficient to provide the forgiveness of something He hates so bad sin. So, do you see the beauty, the need, the perfection of the Trinity? Now there's no doubt as we have learned in our first uh, I'm so confused I can't even remember how weeks how many weeks it's been of study of the trinity. There's so much there that the obviously uh, Brad used the term the finite mind and some of us have less than finite minds. Uh how we're we ever going to understand the infinite. But one thing is clear. We got this figured out now. There There must be an absolutely perfect sacrifice to quench the wrath of a holy God. And listen, only God can quench His wrath. I can't quench God's wrath. All the waters on the planet and in the sky cannot quench the wrath of God. Only God can quench God's wrath. And yes, you and I know, we've been to church enough to know what God has done for us. Sort of. We sort of understand it. He himself came to earth to take our place and be punished on the cross for my sin, your sin, the sins of the elect. Yes, he became the object of his own wrath. So much so that you remember what He said on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when you think about it, He said that to Himself. And the Father, the Eternal Father, hates sin so much, He couldn't even look at it. He turned His back. And the eternal Son says, Why have you forsaken me? And the eternal Son didn't just take our sin on. He became our sin. This God who hates sin intensely became sin. Because He loves us that much. You see, the second person of the Trinity Himself actually became sin for those He Himself predestined to be His before the creation itself. Think about that a while. Only God, only the eternal Son, God Himself, could satisfy the eternal Father's wrath against sin. Look at Ephesians 1, 3-10 and think about this in terms of what we're talking about, obviously. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Himself before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. The Trinity is a beautiful thing. Without it, we're lost. The elders would come forward. And as they're coming forward, think about this. As we come to the table... We never won a match, though. Because we were always the bad guys. I was a little nervous when Brad said I was going to clear this up. But how can a perfectly and absolutely holy God forgive sin? After all, if we know anything from Scripture, we know that God hates sin. Uh, sin arouses God's wrath. You know, when Jesus was in the garden praying, that, let this cup pass, if possible. He was talking about, let the wrath, the cup of God's wrath pass. Didn't want to be the subject of God's wrath. Nobody wants to be the subject or object of God's wrath. Uh, Wayne Gruden, in his book, Systematic Theology, says God's wrath means he intensely hates all sin. And that's why we're happy that Romans 8 1 tells us that. For now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's clear. God hates sin. So the question remains, how can... This holy, this perfectly holy, absolutely holy God who hates sin so intensely. Forgive it. After all, He's got to do something with it. He must. His nature does not allow Him not to do something about sin. Uh, Something must be done. As for punishment... Uh, The Bible speaks fairly directly. In the Old Testament, we see God's wrath against sin quite often. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, the flood, and many, many other occasions. And a lot of people like to think, that well, that's the Old Testament God. (laughs) Well, the Old Testament God it is, but the Old Testament God is the God of the New Testament. He is the same forever. He has never changed and never will change. Jesus himself, the eternal son of the Godhead, was quite clear about punishment for sinners. Look at Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then in, Matthew 25:46 Jesus says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And we also have Mark 9:47 and 48. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worms where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And in Revelation 14, 9 through 11. now I never profess to understand Revelation, you understand. But I, I think I got this particular section down. Uh And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image. And whoever receives the mark of its name. But praise God. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because of His grace. He provided the perfect sacrifice for His people. Think about that. A holy God who hates sin intensely. And we all know how sinful we are, how depraved our hearts are, how unworthy we are of anything except eternal damnation. We're worthy of that. But in order for my sins your sins, the sins of the elect to be forgiven without simply subjecting us to eternal punishment that eternal damnation that we are so worthy of. The transcendent God showed us His eminence. He came as a man. God provided Himself As the only possible sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. Only God is perfect. And his intense hatred of sin requires a perfect sacrifice in order for that sin to be forgiven. Now we would say, well, that's a quandary. And yet God came. To offer himself for you and for me. Because only God is perfect. And only God is a sufficient sacrifice of this sin, for this sin that he hates so intensely. So, do you see the beauty and the glory of the Trinity? (laughs) As Brad said, God could be anything. He wants to be. But He has revealed to us that He is three in one. And He sent Himself. Well, there's so much about this that the finite mind will never figure out, right? Uh, But one thing is clear. To quench the wrath of God, you've got to have a perfect sacrifice. And only God can quench God's wrath. Only God can quench God's wrath. Yes, uh, we know what He's done for us. Every month when we do uh, the sacrament we call communion, we know He came to Earth to take our place and He and be punished on the cross for our sin. Yes. But have we ever thought that He became the object of His own wrath? And the study of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity has enabled at least me to sort of think about these things at a deeper level. In fact, think about it. He's on the cross. And what does He say? The The sins of the elect are on Him. He has become sin. God who intensely hates sin has become sin. And He hates it so much that God the Father cannot even look on it and turns away. And at the same time punishes the sin by pouring out His wrath, His wrath on Himself, the Eternal Son. And then the Eternal Son says to Himself, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, that makes no sense whatsoever outside the Trinity. So folks that don't believe in the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, as clearly revealed, I think, in Scripture, have a problem. How have their sins been forgiven? How can this holy, just, perfect God forgive sin? He can only do it by offering himself as the perfect sacrifice. Look at Ephesians not 1, 3:10, one, three through10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Now when you read that in light of the Trinity, it makes so much sense, does it not? That it's God's plan all along. If the elders would come forth, we'll take communion this morning. And as we come to the table, we come remembering what God Himself has done for us. He gave Himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So that we now belong to Him forever. And there is no condemnation for those who belong to Him.